This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today, our legal roundtable takes a look at new laws that are becoming effective for 2013. In many states, including California, most laws become effective in January, plus a number of federal laws are also coming into effect. And there are a lot of them. In California alone, it is estimated that there are 750 new laws effective January 1st of this year. So we welcome our legal roundtable to discuss these uh, legal topics and the new laws. Uh, Attorney John Fisk from Barry Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, uh, and Wendy Patrick, uh, JD, PhD, attorney, teacher, and all-around good person. Uh, our guests uh, today are, are here speaking as individual educators, not as representatives of their offices. And the fact that I would mention one person is a good person does not mean that the others are not. I'm hurt. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us on Law Review. Uh, Wendy, so what's your favorite uh, of the new laws? You know, you made my day. It's so wonderful nowadays to be called a good person. I appreciate that. I don't need any of the other titles. Um, new laws. Okay, what's new? A lot is new, but let me sort of dive right into something that is um, causing uh, some controversy as it, as it did before it became the law. As of January 1st, um, a lot of employers cannot ask for your Facebook passwords. Um, same thing with some universities. And you know, this this law is um, a blessing and a curse, depending on who you talk to. I mean, a lot of employers had argued that transparency with their employees was something that they felt was important. Now, from the other point of view, an employee would say, gosh, isn't, don't I have any right to a personal life in this day so and this age? So this is essentially a privacy issue. It's, yeah, why, why in the world do I have to let my employer look at what is on my Facebook homepage? So could an employer insist that you sign on and let him see? Not after January 1st. The, the interesting thing... No, in other words, it's not just you can keep the password, but you can't force somebody to reveal their Facebook Well, they'd have to have content. a password. In order, they'd have to well, be no, I just to, said, all right, here's a computer, sign on to Facebook. No, that, and that was what some people were, were trying to do. And the, um, one of the things that the employees think is unfair about, about the requiring the password or, or stand over my shoulder while I log in is that there are areas in some of those sites that are private. In other words, you know, you put a number of things down your Facebook wall, your homepage, but then you have the option of private messaging with people. If I have your password, I get to look at everything I want. And if my purported reason for wanting it is to make sure you're not making the company look bad because you are, let's face it, the, the face, pun intended, of the company, <laughs> regardless of where you are, what you're doing, then why wouldn't I have an argument that I'm going to go and read all your private messages as well? So that that was one of the things that I think, um, at least that was an argument that was made as to why it's it's not fair and it maybe goes beyond what a company would arguably need to know by requesting all that information. Those were the arguments on both sides of that. Wendy, there was a case recently in the past year or two that decided that an attorney sending an email to a employee of a company using an, an, a company's uh, employment um, email system is not subject to privacy. And Holmes, right? What, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And it seems like in the day and age of new technology and the fact that everybody's using social media and email as primary sources of communication, this almost seems like a step in the other direction where some personal privacy is being protected. Most people, when they found out that their personal work email 
couldn't be used to communicate with an attorney felt somewhat violated because that was their primary source of communication. So this seems like it was a little a step in the other direction. That's a great that's a great point, John. Um, Holmes had to do with a an, a, an employee Holmes using being the name of a case. The name of the case, and uh, the employee was actually using work computer, and they they knew about the policy saying we can look anytime you like. It was distinguished, however, from a New Jersey case, Stengard versus Loving Care, which you may be familiar with, another ethics case where that court found the other way. The person was using their own web-based program, although they were accessing it through their employer system. The thing that these two cases stand for really in such diverse results under similar facts, somewhat similar, is that you really got to look at all the facts and circumstances as to how you're doing business and with what information. If you are with full knowledge that you, you know, you sign something that says your employer has the right and they, you could expect them to be looking over your shoulder for using company equipment, then if they do, if they do what they said they were going to do, you don't have an argument. If on the other hand, you've been led to believe there's some semblance of privacy in some aspect of your doing business at a particular company, you might have more of an argument. And and so too with social media. You know, you, if you know what the policies are going in, you can't then say, but it violated my privacy if you conceded to it at, in the get-go. Well, how does the, regarding what you've just mentioned, how does the new law, if it does mention it, affect an employee who's accessing their social media using a company computer or program um, against policy. Can they then say, well, you've used our computer, you've used our system, you used our internet, now can we have your password? I can't wait till the first court analyzes that issue <laughs> because you know it's being done and you know that it's going to become an issue at some point. That is if the employee is using 90% of their time to be on their personal Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be 90. Doesn't, doesn't the employer have some expectation? Well, well this is going to, I mean, you're right. right. There are going to be a whole series of things followed just from this one law. I and mean, it's also an, an uh, I, I suppose a demonstration of how the law has to struggle with new technology because it creates new problems. Even the problems, I mean, people have been writing letters at their desk for forever, and that problem kind of got solved. Once it was in the mail, it was private, uh, and and um, but with with new technology, it's not quite that simple because emails are stored places in the way mail isn't. So new technology creates new problems for the legal system and it can't, they, those problems don't get settled rapidly. They have to slowly be struggled through. But Steve, could I go to your office and go through your trash can? Talk about emails getting stored or archived or deleted you throw away. Oh, you're the a one who has been. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find anything interesting. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have. She's actually or, asking. Or if she right. You'd have to fight through my Twinkie wrappers oh, okay. to get to anything significant. Well, oh, well, Judge Medell, yes. what did you find of interest in the new laws? Well, um, I kind of focused on a new law that was to um, begin at the beginning of the year that had to do with psychologists and psychiatrists being prohibited from doing something called conversion therapy. And conversion therapy means that they're gonna take someone under 18, and in the course of their counseling and therapy, they're gonna convert that person from uh, a homosexual orientation to a heterosexual orientation. Um, and I found it uh, uh, very fascinating, the uh, arguments uh, for and against this. The Legislative history reflects that a large uh, gay lobby actually is the one who proposed this in the California um, the Senate, the California uh, Congress, and uh, 
that initially the psychological community was not in favor of it, not, not because of the substance of it, but rather because it was, uh, sort of felt like an abridgment of their freedom to practice in the way that they wanted to do it. However, in considering that a large number of respected institutions felt that conversion therapy was in fact not with the times, was a little bit archaic and outmoded, and founded on presumption that homosexuality was a disease rather than uh, someone's true genetic or physical orientation, uh, ultimately the um, psychological community came uh, in favor of it, and it was in fa fact passed as a, as a, uh, a law. Um, now we have uh, a number of uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, some affiliated with the Christian Church, uh, as well as parents and, and children affiliated with uh, a religious uh, um, background, challenging it in cases, saying this abridges our freedom of uh, religion, our freedom of speech, uh, the psychologist saying our freedom of practicing uh, our profession in the manner that we deem uh, most therapeutic and most appropriate in accordance with our freedom of speech and religion. And uh, there, is a, there are lawsuits going on uh, that have gone on as we, as we go. There's a case called Pickup versus Brown, which is uh, in uh, U.S. District Court in Sacramento. And interestingly, in that case, the uh, court held that, you know what, um, the psychologist can talk to the patient until they turn blue in the face about the propriety and the necessity for conversion therapy. Um, the law does not prohibit them from talking to them and, doesn't, and therefore doesn't abridge their free speech. But if they actually conduct or commence the therapy in order to actually change them, um, then that is now um, behavior or conduct not protected by the U.S. Constitution, uh, which can in fact be uh, prohibited. And uh, since the state does have um, an interest in protecting youth, people under 18, uh, the uh, Pickup versus Brown Court found that uh, uh, the uh, statute was appropriate and refused to um, issue the injunction that was requested by the, uh, by the plaintiffs in the case finding that they didn't have a reasonable probability of, of winning their case, a standard that you issue for Meaning the, 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 the law, but the Ninth Circuit prevented the law from being enforced, I take it. That's right. There was another case, uh, ironically, that came bef uh, in the Sacramento area in U.S. District Court, and another judge disagreed with the first judge and said, no, I do think you have a reasonable probability of winning. I am going to grant your injunction. And around the same time, the appellate court, um, the U.S. District Court, um, I start that. The U.S. Circuit Court actually said we're going to hear this on appeal, and while the appeal is, a pen, is, is pending, we're going to go ahead and issue the injunction, and the law will not be enforced until we hear the entire appeal. So now, they didn't give a justification for that or a reason. They just said we're going we're gonna to hold, hold everything until we finish the appeal. And essentially the, the, the issues are, on one hand, the, the uh, legislature or the, the state of California saying we have the right to protect our people by prohibiting uh, conversion therapy uh, for anyone under 18, I think it is, whether or not the person has con consented to it. So we have that right to protect people. On the other hand, the therapists and patients saying this violates my freedom of speech because this is talk therapy uh, mostly. Wow. Secondly, it, that's wrong. 
And that's, oh. but I want, I want you to understand that part of the genesis, and I think part of the reason that the psychological community came on board finally, were the origins of a conversion therapy. Uh, for about 40 years, the psychological community has not prescribed to the idea that homosexuality is a disease that needs therapy anymore. But if you go back 40 years and before, some of those techniques for aversion therapy uh, were uh, reminiscent a little bit of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, but they were not, shock, that's shock not therapy. That's not current. Well, it's, it's not it? current. It's the most psychologists, uh, according at least to the case that, that I read as it was described, um, do do talk therapy. But there was uh, aversion treatments that were called, uh, uh, that um, did inducing nausea, vomiting. Yeah paralysis, those sorts of things, snapping a rubber band on your wrist whenever you were uh, aroused by some homoerotic uh, film or publication, those sorts of things. And I think uh, there was a, a recognized um, potential damage to people for those, as well as the talk therapy in terms of someone's self-esteem and, and, uh, and their, their own self-value. And, that sort and of the, 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 I think the other reason the psycholo psychological community and psychiatric communities have opposed it, there's, there's really no evidence it works very well. I mean, of course, there's no evidence of a lot of therapies working real well, but, but that one particularly has, the psychologists say there's just no scientific basis for the treatment itself as opposed to the goals of, of, the, of the treatment, even if it does not involve aversive therapies, I understand. So, so we've got freedom of speech, freedom of religion, as you mentioned on the other side, even a kind of a patient privacy thing. If I'm 17 years old and I want to consent to this, I mean, 17-year-olds 17 17-year-olds 17 can consent to abortion, for example, uh, without anybody else's consent. So there's, uh, there are, this is going to be a fascinating case to, to watch as it, as it moves through. Right. And it seems like an extremely interesting topic from the policy or political standpoint because we've got massive juggernaut issues colliding with each other. But we also have some technical medical issues, which is it seems like not only is there an issue of homosexuality, but there's an issue of methodology as well because I have never heard of this sort of methodology being used in other areas and maybe you uh, mean aversive therapy yeah this, yeah it's it, is, actually, it, is it used yeah. regularly yeah so this is just a specifically a law well th there are multiple that what this is one of the problems of this discussion why we're going to have to do a whole program yeah, on this. I'm is, you know we are it. it is because there and we need to get a psychologist but there are multiple forms of this therapy i mean it's not a standard therapy there are no rules and that's one of the problems i think the case is going to raise is the courts are going to be faced with one group saying look we do talk therapy of people of 17 year olds who come to us and say i want this therapy somebody else is going to be saying, well we do a mild aversive therapy it's not going to be some of the old stuff right but but neither of them has uh, good evidence of success long-term success but but that I think the argument on the other side of that one's going to be well if psychology is going to be required to prove that it's going to reduce the number of therapies around you know, and, I, and I would uh, just I, I re, in any case where long-standing notions uh, founded on religion are in play such as abortion such as this uh, homosexuality, where one side, you know, strongly believes that <clears throat> essentially that um, certain practices are um, motivated by non-godly forces. You know, it's hard to argue against that um, because they're founded on uh, long-standing and, and strongly beliefs. held religious yeah. beliefs. Yeah. So I respect uh, people who, who who feel that way. On the other hand, uh, Dean Smith, I would take the opposite 
example from the 17-year-old who we feel is going to be fairly grounded and fairly self-aware to the six-year-old who, right. boy, who maybe perhaps prefers ballet dancing and, uh, you know, uh, non-athletic things, and the parents are concerned <clears throat> uh, of where he's going in terms of his orientation. And so he begins a course of uh, aversion therapy at a very young age, just without to make real, without real consent of, of that makes any sense. Just to make sure yeah. that he doesn't turn out, uh, you know, the wrong way in, in terms of the religious. Uh, we will. We we are going to come back to this stuff. It really has got. Once the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, takes a look at it, we'll come back uh, on law review because that's it's going right. to be an interesting case. So, John, in the meantime. What did you find of interest? Well, I found several things of interest in being a civil litigator and uh, primarily a practice of personal injury. I honed in on new laws in 2013 that affected drivers and automobiles. Um, the first one I'll read to you a synopsis from an LA Times article, and it has to do with showing proof of insurance to police officers. And it reads, drivers, the, the synopsis at least, reads, drivers pulled over by police are permitted to show officers their proof of insurance on an electronic device such as a smartphone. And I see you're, you're reading the statute <laughs> off And I'm reading the statute from a smartphone. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I am tempted by the smartphone devil, devil whenever I'm driving on one of our busy San Diego freeways. But I can also tell you that I've now developed a practice of simply turning off my phone. More and more of cases that I see coming in my office and in my colleagues' offices are cases involving cell phones and driving. You mean criminal cases or civil cases? Well, it could be criminal, but... You're talking about accidents. I'm talking about accidents that occur ah. because of inattention on the freeways. And the state has heavily regulated uh, the use of cell phones, specifically texting, and anything that takes your attention away from driving, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000-pound machines going 80 miles an hour. And it is, an from the standpoint of a plaintiff's attorney, it is an extremely dangerous thing to do, an extremely dangerous thing to have your attention taken away on any level. Well, that would be true whether whether you have a, a handless device. I mean, you can... You could certainly have a ham sandwich and it would turn your attention no, away. No, but I mean, I, <laughs> no, I mean, if you're talking on the phone, but you, you have a hands-free... I'm, yes, and in fact, there has been a lot of... Um, buzz i'll say it's maybe more informal but there has been some buzz about just eliminating hands-free use devices and telephone devices altogether because it's simply the, the idea of multitasking yeah. is becoming less and less popular in our culture as we start to do more and more tests on the concept of multitasking technology has taken the concept of multitasking to new heights and so a law like this is surprising to me because we're not supposed to be promoting smartphones in cars at all. And I know that this is a scenario where a smartphone is could potentially be off, you could be pulled over, and then you could show your proof of insurance. But the last time I checked, proof of insurance is about a third of a page, and you get it about once a year, maybe twice a year, and you stick it in your glove box, and there's no big deal. Yeah. So I am I am concerned that this is the type of law that would chip away at what I consider to be very important. Well, it may be the, the kind of law that insurance companies can reduce the, the cost of sending out those cards. That's that's very <laughs> true, and we might even do it under the guise of, um, of uh, uh, sustainability or environmental friendliness. But 
I don't know why a if if the if the police have all of my information, I'm not sure why they couldn't also have my updated proof of insurance information. But that's right. one of just my wild technology. John, before ideas. we leave this topic, I note that one of the new transportation laws is entitled "Hands-Free Texting." Right. It kind of sounds kind of oxymoronic, but how does that work? How does one text without touching the keypad? You mean it's it- now going to be legal to text hands-free. Well, that's, yeah, that's what it says. Hands-free texting. This is AB 1536. Well, thank you for asking, Wendy. That was my next <laughs> yeah. law. Wow. Excellent uh, transition there. Drivers may dictate, send, and listen to text-based communications as long as they use voice command and other hands-free technology. Well, thank goodness, because sometimes you don't have a phone call you can make, and now you can do something. All, all I have to say to this law is no thank you. <laughs> I do not want drivers, myself, or others. But this is already passed and in effect. This is one of the laws that passed and was in effect January 1st, 2013. So imagine the drivers who are already... You know, like I said before, we need to break it down. Driving three, four, five thousand pound vehicles, going eighty miles an hour, and now they're using text messages through voice. It's it's a law that's surprising to me, and one that is chipping away at our at our safety. How about live conversations with the passenger while driving? <laughs> What's the difference? Well, I'll I'll tell you, Wendy. If you ask my parents, do not distract the driver. You know, no jokes in the car. You know, no more carpool no lanes because pretty soon either, you're gonna have to be the only one in your vehicle. Just, Make sure you're not talking. No more hands. John sandwiches. brings up this subject because I saw him being pulled over for a police officer, and as the <laughs> off, as the officer went to the window, he said, "Can you hang on a second? Can't you see I'm on the phone?" <laughs> That that's actually uh, not, not too true. far from the truth, but yeah, okay. Now the third the third uh, new law is also with regards to tort liability, and it has to do with this term stadium violence. And in 2012 and in 2011, we saw some very serious cases of stadium violence, which uh, brings up many questions of tort liability with regards to security, intentional tort. Um, and access to a safe environment. I think then, there was a Dodger fan, or a, was there it was a Dodger fan that was killed. There was a Dodger fan up at Giant Stadium, I believe, or was it, it was a, a Giant? Yeah, yeah. It was a Giant, Giant State Giants fan yeah. at Dodger at Stadium. Dodger yeah. Stadium. Big difference. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, brutally, brutally beaten. And the new law says that sports arenas and stadiums must post contact information for security personnel that is visible from seating and parking areas so help can be summoned quickly if violence occurs. Now that's a very difficult law. I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a difficult law to enforce. What does that really mean? But it's something that I think is an improvement uh, to help change the culture of professional sports and its fans in this country. That's so tragic. What do we need to curtail that kind of senseless violence? Apparently a law. I mean, in a sense, this is no a little make weight. It'll be interesting to see how it happens. Because it it's out. already illegal to be punching people out. Oh. That's exactly correct. And I think a lot of people focus on alcohol as the number one uh, highway to, to violence at, at these types of sporting yeah. events. Um, so do, do we go to alcohol sales? And uh, good luck fighting Budweiser, the NFL, the Chargers, uh, the concession stands. And uh, all of the people who profit off of that. You know, but if you were predicting a, a topic for the next decade, the next five years even, it, it would be violence in sports. Because, I mean, it's not just the fans, obviously the players, the football injuries, all the rest of it. That's suddenly bubbling up is a big topic. Yeah, in fact, I, I've um, 
been very interested in the junior sale law, family lawsuit against the NFL. And one of the main issues there is simply culture of violence. And what yeah. does that mean? Yeah. Interesting. Well, let me add uh, what what I have been asked. I, I know I'm not an expert in in taxation, but the, the question I've been asked most at cocktail parties in around uh, town at meetings is what what's going on with my paycheck? Uh, the, the first paycheck people got this year had a bit of a sticker shock in it or a taxation uh, shock. And so they said, what happened? Well, uh, several things happened to make it appear to be, and in fact is, uh, that taxes have gone up. The Social Security tax went up from 4.2% uh, to 6.2%. There had been a temporary reduction to 4.2%. So it went up from 42 to 6.2%, so there's a 2% of your income uh, going more for Social Security, the top top federal rate on ordinary income went uh, from 35 to almost 40 percent. So for some people, that happened, uh, and there was there's a phase out uh, for a lot of taxpayers, some taxpayers, for some taxpayers of some of their deductions and personal exemptions. So the top taxpayers are are not only being taxed at a higher rate, but they're losing the deductions and personal exemptions or portions of those. And for, and then state taxes in a number of places went up, including in California, where uh, the, the surprise there was, and I, I actually had someone angry as though I were responsible for this, that they, <laughs> <laughs> which is the, 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 the tax increase that California voters uh, had on top incomes that went at the top rate from roughly 10% to roughly 13.3%, that is retroactive to the beginning of 2012. So it was adopted in November, but it's retro to 2012. So this uh, fellow had just found out that he could have made some tax decisions earlier that he was doing for 2013, but he lost them in 2012 because he didn't make the changes. And that was for net income over $250,000. Is that the law you're referring well, to? Well, yeah, that, that was the, the top rate is, I think, for over a million. It starts going up from the current rate uh, at 200 uh, at no below that, but it's the millions where you get to 13.3. Well, it's real interesting to talk about taxes because. Um, I'm a relatively young professional, but my tax uh, policy and, and philosophy changes every year. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it will. And, and it will probably continue to change every year. And I can't help but think about something um, a mentor of mine said in terms of uh, de-incentivizing um, uh, American workers. And I don't know if it de-incentivizes American workers, but it's certainly something for all of us to be very aware of as we continue to pursue our profession. Well, it's, it is. It, it is. Taxes, uh, obviously, are something nobody enjoys paying, but it's it's an important part of, of maintaining a society. By the same token, it has effects on the economy. And the um, it's interesting that I just saw the figures for the the last quarter of last year, and if those figures hold, there was a decline in uh, gross domestic policy of one-tenth of one percent. So if these taxes have the effect of slowing, because people, the shock that I, people are talking about, uh, of seeing their pay stub go down, if that you know nudges the economy down this quarter, the first quarter of 2013, we will technically be in a recession again, because it's uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And um, we will be at that point if that happens. So it has economic consequences as well. Well, what a, 
a wonderful group of laws. Now, we have only about a thousand more to go through before <laughs> we have covered all the new things. You know, in the spirit of sort of ending on a high note, um, a, sort of, a little bit of levity after all the tax laws, uh, one of the new laws is driverless vehicles. Have everybody seen this? Um, permits testing autonomous vehicles, cars that drive themselves on public roads subject to safety certification and the presence of a human in the case of an emergency. Well, your car gets there on time, but you're a little bit late. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the car doesn't text while driving, then I'm That's okay with right. it. Right. This is one we'll want to follow. And Judge Medell, another good news, California finally has its official marine reptile. I am proud to say the following two words to you. Dermochelis coriaceae. <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> That's no problem. That is our state official marine reptile. Just like all of us who want to go maybe to Maine to get some Maine lobster or to San Francisco to get some great sea, seafood, this six-foot, 2,000-pound uh, sea turtle travels thousands of miles across the ocean to eat jellyfish on the California coastline wow. every yeah. single year. There was a photograph of him on the internet, and he's a very handsome uh, young man. <laughs> and uh, the governor has seen fit to name him the state official marine reptile, just as we call the redwood our state tree and the golden poppy our state flower. Wow. And I thought that was it something makes you that needed to be, to be a Californian does. Oh, it just does. That's neat. Well, there, w there will be, uh, I predict, uh, for this year, great news to follow throughout 2013, a lot of legal issues to cover, and we thank uh, our Legal Roundtable for uh, getting us off to a great start in 2013. Our guests on Law Review today are Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Bedell, and Attorney Wendy Patrick. Thank you for being with us on Law Review. Thank you. They are, as always, speaking as individual educators and not representatives of their uh, off individual offices. Thanks also to our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, Ben Pesner, and Katrina Julian. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so you can send us in a message on the lawreview.podbean.com site. All best wishes to our listeners for the 2013 uh, season. And until next time, this is Steve Smith and the Law Review stands adjourned.